Last October, I spent part of one of my days off at my family's cottage on Wilson's Reservoir. It was a beautifully clear autumn day, and the water was beckoning me to go for a paddle in the canoe. I didn't need to pick up James in the next hour and a half, but I figured that was enough time for me to cruise down to the dam and back. And so I got in the canoe, grabbed, grabbed my paddle, and set off. And I made my way with ease, reaching the dam in very little time. As I changed my course to return to the cottage, the conditions changed, or at least my perspective changed. If the wind had been behind me, it was now against me as I tried to make my return. Air whipped across the reservoir like a jet stream, pummeling my canoe back towards shore again and again and again. Time was ticking. I needed to get back so I could pick James up. The thought of sheepishly calling my cousin or another relative for help because I was stuck out in the reservoir in the canoe haunted me with the dread of embarrassment. I put extra effort into my paddling. I discovered if I paddled backwards, the wind couldn't so easily grab the front because no one was in it and so it was just spinning the canoe around. So with tedious labor, paddling backwards, I slowly made my way. And at a certain point I began praying because I was afraid that my arms were going to start cramping from all the paddling I had been doing and I hadn't stretched or anything. And, I was just afraid I was going to get exhausted. God didn't allow that to happen. And even better, the wind let up for just a bit. I was able to make some quicker progress and soon gained the upper hand once I entered our cove. James was picked up on time. I was saved some embarrassment. And I was filled with gratitude for God's mercy. That experience in the canoe has given me a much greater appreciation for the difficulties the disciples faced when they crossed back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, we find them on the sea again, but this time Jesus is not with them until he is. Returning to chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to pick up in verse 22. Matthew 14 starting verse 22. Beginning in 22, Matthew records, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, you'll recall that just previous to these verses, Matthew describes how um, 
Jesus and the disciples had made their way across the Sea of Galilee, hoping to find some solitude, some quiet time away from the crowds. And when they reached the other side, they were confronted by more crowds. And rather than turning the crowds away, Jesus invited them. He healed them. He taught them. And what's more is he fed them miraculously with just a few loaves and a couple fish. And so it's kind of right after this has happened, after he has performed this incredible miracle feeding over 5,000 people, that he then tells his disciples they need to get in the boat and start ahead, going to the other side without him. Now, I think this is the reason why Matthew says that Jesus had to make his disciples, he said he's made his disciples get into the boat, because you can imagine the disciples not wanting to leave Jesus behind. They're like, what do you mean you're going to stay? No, like, how are you going to get to the other side? Just come in the boat with us. And especially since the crowds were still there, and they didn't want to leave Jesus just to have to deal with all these people, but he insisted. He made them get in the boat. Now, part of the reason why they may not have wanted to get in the boat is because they too, like the crowd, were probably caught up in a fervor over this miracle that Jesus had just performed. Recall that I I mentioned in our last sermon that in John 6, the apostle records that when the people saw the, the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely... This is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then in the next verse, he records that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So it's clear the people were really whipped up. They're like, okay, this, this Jesus must be the Messiah. And Jesus, again, has to try to break away from the crowds. And he does leave to a mountain, and he, he sends the disciples across the way into the boat, and he dismisses the crowd. And, you know, it's funny because with John's account of how, you know, whipped up they were, how Jesus could just dismiss them, but I kind of imagine maybe he was able to dismiss them because he wasn't getting in the boat with the disciples. They're like, okay, he's on our side of the lake, so we'll go home for now, and he's still over here. Now, just to kind of give you a picture, this is where the disciples are starting. They're getting in their boat, and they're going to make their way towards that general area of the lake. So you can imagine, they're in their boat. That is actually the Sea of Galilee, and they're making their way across. So Jesus, it says in verse 23, he goes up to the mountain to get some time alone praying. And this kind of circles back around to his original purpose for why they even came to that side of the lake in the first place. He wanted to get away from the crowds. He needed to spend time with God. And I think this is an example for this. I mean, for us. I mean, consider this. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And yet he even is taking time to pray. If you think anyone would maybe be able to skip out on having to pray, you'd think maybe it'd be Jesus. But no. He takes time to pray takes time to break away from the crowd. And it's important for us to remember that as well, is that it's good and important for us to be here together corporately for worship. Um, And sometimes I think we can forget the importance of that. But it's also important for us to find quiet times, find solitude to just come before God 
without the distractions and spend time in prayer with him. Now, Jesus didn't just spend a little bit of time in prayer. He spent multiple hours in prayer because it says that he went praying late into the night. And actually, if you're reading from the NIV, it just says late into the night. Um, And if you look at um, the ESV, it actually gives you the actual um, time that of, of night. It says the fourth watch, um, which doesn't mean much to us, so I'm, I'm assuming that's why the NIV just says late into the night. Um, but the fourth watch was until like th- between 3 and 6 a.m. <laughs> so Jesus was praying for a long time. He was up really late praying. And Mark corroborates this in his account in Mark 6. He says that um, it was just shortly before dawn that Jesus was praying, and then he looks out and he, dis- he sees his disciples out in the boat. Now, they had made some progress. Um, John 6 indicates that they had gone out about three to four miles. They had made it about halfway across um, the lake to where they were heading. But it was a bit of tough going for them. They were facing some bad waves. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 6, verse 48, it says that Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, as I'm reading that, I'm like, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to struggle against the wind. That's not fun. Now, Jesus seeing this, you'd think that maybe he would just start praying for their rowing to get easier, that the wind would die down and they could just get across uh, more easily. But that's not what he does. Instead, he begins his own journey across the lake. Picking up in verse 25, it says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, If it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Jesus decides he's going to take a stroll across the lake. Why? Why why does he decide to do this? It seems a bit strange. Uh, Well, we can imagine it would be better than rowing, given how bad the wind and waves were. And you could almost imagine there could be a little bit of a a prank here. I mean, if it, was you, if it was you or I and we had this ability, it'd be kind of fun to kind of spook our disciples. <laughs> Just walk by, like, hey guys! And they're like, ah! They're freaking out. Um, but that's not Jesus' purpose here, even though maybe he did find it a little bit funny. Maybe. Um, now, his real purpose here was to reveal all the more to his disciples who he was. 
He, he was trying to teach them by a sign. Now, what was he trying to reveal and teach to them? You know, when they first see him, they think, this is a ghost. In the Greek, it says a phantasma, some kind of phantom. And if you're up that late paddling, maybe some of them thought, I'm starting to see things, but they were freaked out. And naturally, all of us would be freaked out if we're in the middle of the lake at like four in the morning and we see some guy walking across the lake. Jesus responds to them, though, and says, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, there's something important for us to catch here in the language that Jesus used that kind of indicates what he's trying to reveal to his disciples. He says, it is I. In the original Greek, that is ego and me. Now, the reason why this has a hint of significance to this is because if you go back into the Old Testament, to Exodus 3.14, and you look at the Greek version of the, of the Bible, which was around at that time. It was common for the Jews to be familiar with the Greek version of the Bible. It was called the Septuagint. It uses this same language. In Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses when he asks, you know, who am I to tell the people that you are, what, what God is sending me, um, he says, God says to Moses, Ego me. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, additionally, what this language is kind of anticipating is just an even greater miracle that Jesus is going to reveal to the disciples after his death and burial. It's looking forward to his resurrection. In Luke 24, 39, when Jesus appears to the disciples, he says, look at my hands and my feet. Ego a me. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So we see that, yes, Jesus is just trying to make it clear that it's him, it's, it's Jesus. But there can also be an indication of some of this I am language pointing to his divine identity. Now, what's interesting is if you look in the gospel accounts of Mark and John, they don't include this episode with Peter walking on the water. They include the part with Jesus walking on the water, but not Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water. And as we've as I've mentioned before, just because other gospel accounts don't include certain details doesn't mean that those details didn't occur. The gospel authors have very, they're including and excluding certain details for very specific purposes because they're trying to show specific things in the way that they're organizing these accounts. And so the fact that Matthew includes this account of Peter in this indicates to us that we're supposed to learn something from Peter's example here, from what he does and how he fails. When, G when Peter sees Jesus right side of the boat, standing on the water, he asks for an invite to come out to him. Verse 28, he says, Lord, if it's you, 
Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says to him, come. Now, what I find really interesting about this record here is that it's really kind of an embarrassing story for Peter, which I think kind of points to his authenticity. You know, if, if, you, if you were going to try to create some conspiracy theory about the disciples just kind of making up the Gospels, and I was Peter, kind of the head honcho, why would I let a story go around where it shows me getting out of the boat and not having enough faith to make it to Jesus, but instead starting to drown halfway across? If it was contrived, we'd expect that we'd say, oh yeah, Peter just walked right out, and he made it to Jesus, and this is why we have so much respect for Peter. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see Peter looking at the wind and the waves. He becomes afraid. Starts to doubt. And sinking, he cries out, Lord, save me. And verse 31 records how Jesus came to his aid, pulled them out of the water. Says, Jesus says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, there is a distinction here this little faith that Peter has, there's a distinction here between little faith and no faith. If we go back to chapter 13, and by the end of there, we see that the people of Nazareth had no faith. So very little happened there in terms of any miracles. But when Jesus says that Peter has little faith, I think what he's trying to say is that Peter has deficient faith. Peter's doubting in Christ's power. Even as he, at the same moment, you know, we can see him there, he does cry out for him to save him. But he gets distracted by the wind and the waves. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus use this language of little faith. If we go to Matthew 6.30, see Jesus teaching his disciples about how they shouldn't doubt in God's provision. It says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And then if you just go a couple chapters over, we find very similar circumstances to the ones found here. Jesus and his disciples are out on the lake. This time they're in the middle of a very bad storm wasn't indicated that this was a very bad storm, but in Matthew 8, it's a very bad storm. And Jesus is asleep in the boat, and his disciples are freaking out why he isn't awake, trying to do something. And in Matthew 8, 26, he replies to them and says, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? The problem for Peter is that he began believing more in the power of of the wind and the waves than Christ. He was lacking in faith. Now we talk a lot about faith, but what is it? What is faith? What is the definition of faith? Well, the Bible actually gives us a, a pretty straightforward definition. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
I'll say that again. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, when you hear that, I think a lot of people think that, okay, this means that faith is a blind trust. But that's not the case. There's a difference between having blind faith and the kind of faith that is characterized by having confidence in those things that are not yet seen. The nature of blind faith is that it is offered, is given without basis or reason. It's kind of naive. And um, that's completely different than Christian faith because Christian faith has its reasons. I would compare it to marriage. If you just walked out on the street and proposed, if it's a guy, you know, if you proposed to just some random woman and she said yes for some weird reason, if you just married anyone, it would be an exercise in blind faith that each other would keep those vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health until death to us part. Because you don't know anything about the other person. You don't know whether they would actually keep those vows or not. I think the picture that we have of Christian faith is found when you do have two people who know each other who make those vows. They can't see the future. They can't see those moments when they will be sick, when they will be poor, when they will be tempted. They're not fortune tellers. They can't peer into the future, but they trust that that person will keep those vows in those times not yet seen. Now let's bring this back to Jesus. Jesus has been giving his disciples reasons to trust him all the way up to this point. He's performed miraculous healings. He's calmed a storm before. And he just literally fed a, a crowd of larger than 5,000 people with just a few loaves, a couple fish. And yet, Peter still doubts. And as it turns out, Peter wasn't the only one among the disciples who were doubting. Mark 6 it records that when the disciples were seeing Jesus walking on the water and all of this, in Mark 6, verses 51 through 52, it says, They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So they were doubting. Peter was doubting. Jesus wasn't expecting Peter to be blind to the risks of walking out on the water to him. But in inviting him to come, he was inviting Peter to see those risks and yet walk. I think it's important for us to recognize that faith is so often manifested in the face of risk. In fact, you can't really call it an instant of faith if there, if there is no risk 
involved. There is no faith if you don't see the wind and the waves. If they just put Peter blindfolded on the boat this whole time and he didn't know what was going on and they're just like, oh yeah, we're at land, Peter. Go ahead and walk. That's not an, <laughs> Jesus is standing there. That's not an instant of faith except maybe in his uh, companions. Um, but not the kind of faith that would be required to walk out on a stormy sea. And I think this reminds us that there's a certain quality of faith that goes above and beyond just the simplistic faith, which doesn't take into account any risks or doesn't consider any reasons to doubt. Um, There's some people that just kind of say, you know, they hear me preach and they just believe at my word and I'm, I'm glad that you trust the, the authority of Scripture and all, all these things. Um, but they don't think ab- about some of the challenges to Scripture. They don't think about some of the risks that might be taken in doing, going and sharing maybe the gospel with their neighbors or their friends. And um, that is a certain example of faith. I think even more faith is required when you can see all those risks and yet you still act. When you do have questions in your mind, when you realize that there's things in the Bible that maybe you don't perfectly understand, and yet you believe. Because you, you, you believe that it's by having faith that you will come to understanding. And that you recognize that in following Christ and sharing the gospel, you might lose friends. People might think bad, badly of you, and yet you still act despite those risks because you have faith and trust in Christ. And the way that I, I think of it is like this, is if you... I'm not sure where the slides are. Tim, can you go to that first picture of the bridge? Yeah, see that bridge? Crossing that bridge doesn't require very much faith at all. Maybe a little bit to trust the construction that it's not rotten underneath or something like that. But most of us wouldn't be afraid of crossing that bridge, even if you generally have a fear of heights. Just a little bit of faith to walk across that bridge. Go to the next one, Tim. Now consider that. That's in Ireland. It's like there's nothing in between those boards. There's just this little track, this high rope, and mom, mom is sent the kids, go ahead, kids, go across the bridge. <laughs> that takes a lot of faith, a lot more faith than just crossing over that little bridge. And I think what this kind of reminds us is, is that faith is most manifest by action. But what, by, what, by what we are actually doing more than what we are actually just saying. You could say that you trust that bridge, but until you actually walk across that bridge, I'm not going to believe you that you trust the bridge. You've got to actually walk out there. Now, Leslie read our, our scripture uh, for us this morning from James 1, 5 through 7. I want to read that again because I think it highlights kind of the nature of faith. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts 
is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now it's easy to miss, but the way in which faith is manifest, according to James, is in our asking. We, when we ask God, that's when we're exercising faith. And if we're doubting, it's kind of like retracting that. Or it's like, okay, I'm not actually believing that you can deliver on this. Now, I, I think we do have to make a distinction here between doubt and question. Doubt is different from questions. Doubt is different from a lack of understanding. Because all those things, questions, lack of understanding, these can be occasions for faith. And I've had to work this out in my own life with the questions that I've, I've, I've wrestled with. But what doubt does is that it pulls you back. It tosses you back and forth, like James says. But you can't be back and forth when you're on this bridge. You can't. It's more dangerous to just keep going back and forth than to just cross it. And that's what faith is. Faith is saying, I believe and I'm going to walk. I'm not going to be back and forth. Something that I think, though, that is so comforting here in this passage is that Christ does show mercy to us in our doubts. We see this mercy that he shows to Peter when he cries out, Lord, save me. And you can cry that when you're, when you're wrestling with doubt. Cry out, Lord, save me. Because Jesus loves people who doubt. Jesus loves Peter here because he reaches out and grabs him and pulls him out of the water. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that in his love and mercy, Christ did not calm the waters beforehand. Do you think maybe maybe he'd make it easy for Peter to come out to him, just make everything nice, smooth like glass for him to walk out to him? He doesn't remove the wind and the waves. He wants Peter to walk through them. And it's just in this moment, as the waves are crashing, as the wind is whipping, that the faith that Christ desires is called to be put into action, like in this high bridge. I think sometimes we expect that God in his mercy and love will always calm the winds and waves in our lives. And sometimes he will. Sometimes he will do that for us. But at other times, he wants us to walk through the wind and waves. Because in those moments, when everything's kind of swirling around, both our faith and our doubts are brought to to the surface. We're exposed. And we're able to see our faith for what it truly is. Whether it's real or just superficial. So Jesus shows this mercy to Peter. He picks him up. They get in the boat. And now, once they're in the boat, the wind and the waves calm. You can imagine Peter just thinking, gee, Jesus, I wish you had done this just a few moments before. But now he does this. Again, because we noted, you know, he's done this miracle before, calming the seas. 
And the disciples offer a significant response to everything that they've witnessed here. Verse 33, they say, it says, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is a development here, because if you go back to the account of Jesus calming the storm, back in Matthew 8, they don't say this. They say, what sort of man is this? And if you go to the other gospel accounts, they say, what sort of man is this? They're just kind of mystified. They're befuddled. You know, what? How is it possible that he does all this? But now they see all this and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. They're progressing. Jesus is bringing them along. He's teaching them through what he's showing them. Now, naturally, this is an incredible miracle. And they are starting to grasp the full significance of it all, that Jesus is more than a mere prophet, that he's the Son of God. And, of course, they haven't perfectly theologically defined that at this point. They probably don't fully comprehend that Jesus is fully man and fully God, but they know something divine is is going on here. And perhaps their minds recall Job's testimony about who God is in Job 9, verses 4 through 10. There Job says, His wisdom as God, His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted Him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in His anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and catch this, and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Jesus has just tread on the waters, and he's been performing miracles that cannot be counted. He just keeps doing it again and again and again. And so they begin worshiping him. And what's significant here is Jesus' response, or really his lack of response, because he doesn't scold them for worshiping him. We notice a difference here in the Apostle John's account in Revelation when he begins to worship an angel. In Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that! I am a fellow servant with you, and with your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. So, you know, John's in the boat here with Jesus. He's one of the disciples. If the angel scolds John for worshiping him, because it's inappropriate, because he's not God, 
Wouldn't we expect Jesus to scold John and the rest of the disciples if he wasn't gone? The fact that he welcomes their worship, doesn't say stop doing that, is a silent testimony to his divine identity, that he is God and that he is worthy of worship. Jesus is, in fact, God, the Son incarnate. That is everything that is being indicated here. So concluding the chapter in verses 34 through 36, Matthew tells us what occurs once they make it to the other side. Verse 34, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him, and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. So they make their way. They've landed at Gennesaret. And the, the gospel accounts, they're not precise in the exact location where they landed. They mention kind of the region of Capernaum. And they can, you can see it's in that general vicinity. Now, what I really enjoy about the Apostle John's account in his Gospel is he tells us what happens on the other side of the lake when they realize Jesus is gone. In John 6, 22, it says, In the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So aside from kind of, I I find a little bit of humor in this, that Jesus kind of gave them the slip, these crowds that just kept following him, it's just another indication of there's more witnesses to this fact. They're like, Jesus was on this side of the lake. His disciples went in the boat, and now he's not here. How... How did he get to the other side of the lake? Jesus didn't have a little skiff. There was just one boat. So the crowds are like, well, we're going to go find him. And so they, crowds from that shore make their way around to where Jesus is. And there's already crowds gathering on the other side because they recognize Jesus. Jesus has been ministering in this area. Their home base is basically in Capernaum. And what we find among the crowds here is a response of faith. Compare this again to the end of chapter 13 in Nazareth. There was no faith. Very few miracles. Here there is tons of healings. Tons of miracles because the people have faith. And their response is so powerful that it, it follows the example of the woman who had the issue with bleeding. And in her faith, she just reached out to Jesus and touched his cloak. And she was healed. This isn't indicating that Jesus' cloak has special power or anything kind of superstitious like that. It's indicating that the miraculous occurs when we put our trust in the power of Christ. And so these people received all these blessings. We encounter Christ as we struggle at the oars of life. We strain in our fight against the wind and the waves that push us around 
and he comes to us in the midst of them. When you've seen him, how have you responded? Does doubt and fear dominate your actions? Or does faith determine your response? Faith is about response. It's not about saying you believe something. It's about acting on what you believe. If we believe Jesus is truly the Son of God, this will be demonstrated in our actions. If we doubt Jesus is truly the Son of God, this will be demonstrated in our actions. If we have faith, we will walk through the storm with him. If we lack faith, if we believe more in the winds and the waves, we'll be tossed about. They will cover us. Peter sank not because he did not believe in himself, but because he did not believe in Christ. We live in times in which we are told that our real trouble is that we don't believe in ourselves. Just believe in yourself and good things will happen. And while it is possible to doubt your capabilities too much, no amount of believing in yourself will make you walk on water. The winds and the waves are real. If we feel despair in this life, it's in part because we know that we are truly weak. On our own, we will die. We need God. Jesus Christ is God with us. Our need begs us to respond to him with faith. The mercy of Christ to those who doubt, that saving hand that pulls us out of the water, is at the same time intended to bring us toward faith and away from doubt. He can handle our fears and our questions. He only asks us to trust him. Not blindly, but because he has given us reasons to trust him. He has shown us who he is. He is faithful in all things, in the best of times, in the worst of times. Whether we're rich or poor, whether in sickness or in our health. He is faithful through the day you die and until the day when you'll be raised from the dead by him. So look to him. Trust in him more than the winds and waves that surround us. Go and walk to Christ in faith. Let us pray. Father, we confess that so often our vision is obscured by the winds and waves of this life, that we are apt to doubt, Father, because we believe more in the powers of this world and trust only in our own powers, Father, than rather than looking to you for our safety and security. Father, you have manifested our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. You have shown us that 
you have not left us alone, but in fact that you are with us through the Son. That he's come into our midst to bring the kingdom of God among us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to not doubt like Peter, to not be afraid, to not be tossed about, but rather that we would respond with faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would trust in him, not blindly, but because you have shown us, Father, faithfully who you are. And we see who Jesus is. And we know that we can trust him in all circumstances even deadly circumstances, Father, even through the grave, Father, because we know that in Him we have the promise of salvation and resurrection life. We give thanks to you, Father, for this hope in which we can put our faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go this morning. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.